Hey friends, this is Holly Goodman, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's group of exceptional autism parents. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. Full disclosure, I am Zooming from home and Maria is Zooming from her car. Although Maria, you're not going to have nearly the interruptions that I'm going to have because you were smart and escaped to your car. Tanya, (laughs) thank you for joining us as a teacher working. How many years, Tanya, have you been teaching special education? Uh, This is my seventh year. Oh, so you are still new to it. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, talk to us a little bit starting out. Would you mind introducing yourself? And then what made you passionate about going into special education? Because a lot of times I'm seeing some teachers actually go into special education later in their career, as opposed to starting out and jumping right in. Uh, So Tanya Amdahl, um, I actually received my teaching degree about six years before I started using it. Um, I had a a sick child at home and we were in and out of the hospital constantly. And so I decided to private tutor for those five or six years. Um, I knew that I wanted to be in a classroom where I could be depended on. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to do that with a sick child at home. So I kind of just took my time. Originally, I didn't decide to be a teacher. I got my bachelor's degree in communications with a minor in psychology and a certificate in mediation, which made me a really great bartender um, (laughs) for a long time. Yeah. I also, I bartended across the street from the airport. So anytime somebody had a canceled flight, I'd get kind of the brunt of it. And then I'd kind of talk them down with the help of some liquid, you know, encouragement. And, uh, and then I started thinking that maybe I wanted kids and that maybe the bartender lifestyle would not be helpful while having children. All six years have been in special ed. Um, I decided to go back and get my jet ed degree and I went through the program and I was assigned a master teacher that had a completely different philosophy than I did. And that would put me down in front of the kids Um, which I didn't agree with and I didn't like. And my escape was going to the special education room. They had a special education room, just one at the school that I was uh, doing my student teaching at. And I would just go read them stories. And they were so happy to see me. And the adults were so happy to see me. And I felt like I was at home. And I uh, already had a two-year-old. And I found out I was pregnant at the end of that um, getting my master's degree in gen ed. And I came home and and told my husband, Hey, I signed up for another master's program. And he said, do we get to talk about this? And I said, no, I already signed up. Um, and so I did that and I loved it. I love behavior. I, when I was tutoring before, um, I started really getting into a classroom, what I did is I ran a summer school for kids who couldn't um, couldn't be in a daycare, like they had been kicked out for behaviors, things like that. And it was three friends of my daughters, really? and they all three of them had been kicked out of multiple different daycare facilities for having behaviors. And so I took them in, and we did summer school, and it was great. 
and um, never I've had my chairs thrown. I've had, you know, I've had my table knocked over and I went, eh, it came with the house, whatever. Yeah. And so um, I had this, this conversation with this little girl. She was in third grade, the same age as my daughter at the time. And I, I sat down and I said, I, I know what's happened to you. And guess what? I don't care what you throw of mine. I'm not going anywhere. I'm still going to be here. I'm still going to be here for you. I'm going to be here for your grandma. I'm going to be here to help you. I don't care what you do to me. And she never did anything after that. She never threw anything. She never got an attitude with me. She was amazing. She was just waiting for somebody to push her away. Like she had been over and over again. And I was like, yeah, I gotta, this is, this is it. This is what I got to (laughs) do. You are a special person, Tanya, because a lot of people are very uncomfortable with behavior. And so you are now the teacher in a classroom that has, has prayed, well, mostly students that have behaviors that are difficult to manage in another environment, correct? Absolutely. My classroom is all students with behavior IEP goals. So let's talk about that because it's not necessarily just autism. It's actually, yes. In fact, actually, that's probably the smaller number of kids that are in your class, correct? Mm -hmm. So what other students generally find their way to you? Um, Students with a lot of trauma. It is amazing to me what a child can live through by the age of five or six or seven. Um, And, you know, I'd curl up in a ball and I would never return. And these kids are still coming to school every day. Um, I have a lot of kids with mental illness, a lot of kids um, that are thought to be maybe um, bipolar, but it's not something that they can really have the right medications for until they're 13. Um, So we just, they still have to come to school. They still have to get an education. And uh, a lot of ODD, we have kids who have ADHD. A lot of what I see specifically um, are kids with dyslexia. Oh, <laughs> no matter what their diagnosis is, whether it's autism, whether it's ODD, whether it's some sort of trauma or mental illness, I see a lot of dyslexia and uh, both my husband and my mom and my children have dyslexia. And I have literally sat down with a kid, um, you know, who's come to our class maybe a weekend and been like, hey, does this happen to you? Does this? How about this? Yeah, this one too. And I'm like, I think you might be dyslexic. And I literally had a kid go, you mean I'm not stupid? Yeah. And I'm like, no, honey, you have dyslexia. Like I can help that. That's fine. I'll get you reading. I'll get you doing math. That's not a problem. And once we like, honestly started getting them feeling some success, it was no more behaviors. Yeah. It's normalizing it. I have dyslexia, so I can really appreciate that because I was in special ed all the way, even into high school. And I was to be a person that wasn't D I wasn't, I wasn't going to be on a college track because of my learning. And, um, so they had me in alternate tracks where, which was teaching me vocational skills and my high school placed me with a job so that that way I could practice doing a job before I graduated high school, because again, I wasn't a college track kid. So I think that that is very interesting. And dyslexia is something that's more prevalent. It's not the tradition, you know, in my years, it was like, oh, if you're not seeing letters backwards, you don't have dyslexia. And that is so not the case, which is so unfortunate for so many people. And you're right. It's all about normalizing it. Um, I can't tell you how much shame I felt throughout my whole entire life. Shame because I'm a different, um, I just don't understand. I don't, 
things are hard. I have barriers. I mean, I've worked to overcome a lot of those, but it's amount, it's, it's all about shame. And I think when you, in your classroom, those kids, you're right. What those kids have had to survive at such a young age, it is just astounding that they still come to school. Their brains are not in a place where they're able to learn. If you're in trauma and there's that element of shame because you have learning disabilities or you know that your behaviors are off the charts, but again, behavior is communication. It's really mm-hmm. difficult to be in a space where you can do meaningful learning. And I imagine a lot of what you're doing in your classroom is um, a lot of nurturing. You have to be able to nurture them, get them to trust you, um, calm the brain and get to a place where learning can happen. But um, with that, I mean, how would you, what does a normal day look like? Is there, I mean, normal. I actually said the word normal. We all laugh. <laughs> what is normal? People ask me that all the time at the Isaac foundation. What's a normal day at the Isaac foundation? Oh, surely you just like, what is normal? Right. But right. tell me what a typical day might look like in your classroom. Uh, so we come in and of course we now have to eat breakfast, which is just another rant for another time. Uh, lots of washing hands, obviously, which just takes so much of our day Okay, end of rant there. Um, So we, uh, every morning we do uh, pace exercises. So it's really that cross body movement. Um, We do them together. We always have one of the kids be the leader. It's really using both sides of your brain. um, Just that little bit of physical activity, some stretching, that sort of thing. And we go directly from that into social skills. So we do explicit social skills instruction every single day of the week. Um, it used to be with different populations, it just kind of has morphed through year to year what the necessity is for social skills. The, our counselor for our classroom, yes, we have a dedicated cl- counselor, which is amazing. Um, she teaches social skills. Uh, she uses, she has several different curriculum that she uses dependent on kind of what kids we have at the time. And it's really based on the need. Um, a lot of kids right now we're really working on some of those just basic like sharing type ideas and practices and what that means and what that looks like and taking turns and you know, raising your hand before you speak and all of these things. And it's always based on giving these kids skills to get them out of our room. We really want them in the gen ed classroom. We do, but we have to have them be successful. Yeah. I know special education in itself went through this huge shift of money because it's all based on that. As as far as um, we used to, so the district used to get paid for how many minutes the kid was in special education. So it was people, lots of kids who didn't need to be in special education were in special education because it brought in more money. And now the funding is completely opposite. So now they only get the funding for how much they're in general education. And so now the push is just to throw them in general education and go, hey, look, you're doing great, even though you're just sitting there and not doing anything and not learning anything. That's awesome. Um, So we really do make sure that our kids are successful in there, which is why everything that we practice in our classroom is something that can translate to the gen ed classroom. Um, so we base our social skills on that uh, as far as what, what needs we have after social skills. I mean, it's straight up academic time. We are not a classroom that's sitting around trying to put out fires all the time. Like it's a lot of academic work and it's taken me several years to kind of help other people understand that we're not just sitting around singing Kumbaya all day. Like we're doing work. 
and we're doing hours of work and we have breaks in between that, you know, we'll go out to recess, run around and come back in and we'll work. And our kids, our kids work and they work hard. And we've had kids go from coming in at a third grade level and knowing 10 of their kindergarten sight words to now I have a sixth grader who is at the middle school reading seventh, eighth grade material because we worked so hard with her it wasn't even funny. And I'm sure Maria can think of exactly who it is and knows exactly. <laughs> but I think it was that building that relationship is that key yes. point with that child for sure. And I'm assuming all of your children, all of your Absolutely. students. But. And not just the child, but the parents. We had to have parent buy-in and we have to have good parent relationships. It's not, it's not just a program for kids. It's a program for their whole family. Um, and I know that school hasn't always been a positive thing for most parents. And so to get them to even trust you, I can see that the focus would have to be on them as well. We have to make a lot of positive phone calls, which is fabulous. Who doesn't want a positive phone call about their kid? You know, like getting a certificate sent home is one thing, but like really sitting on the line with someone and going, hey, look, I know they destroyed the classroom last week, but they haven't done it since. That's yeah. progress. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want you to know that. It's delighting That's in them. You know, you parents want someone to feel that someone is delighting in like the wonderful elements of their kiddo. And that's Absolutely. the thing is, unfortunately, when you're not getting it, it's just reinforced that every time the phone rings, like I'm one of those parents, the phone rings and it's the high school. And I'm like, oh God, which one did what next? I mean, it's terrifying. And it's been that way for many, many years. And even when my son, Caleb, who is in middle school and he's not a behavioral kid, but when the school calls me, it's like, this can't be good. Um, and isn't that unfortunate? So I love your philosophy of delighting the kids and, and delighting with the parents. So the parents know that there is someone that's in their corner that sees all of those wonderful attributes. And I think that's really important for shifting that whole belief that this person is really there to help my child and they're going to do what needs. It's the trust. It's what builds trust. Um, now I didn't ask this question early on, but what is the age range of kids in your class? Um, originally, our program was built for second through fifth grade, but um, as admin changes, they change it to whatever they feel like. So we could literally have pre-K to fifth. Uh, at one point in time, they did try to put a pre-K into our classroom while we had sexualized fifth grade kids in our classroom. And, um, you know, I had to I had to make my voice known. Um, I'm not always loved by admin, but I advocate for these kids no matter what. And so I really don't care what the people think above me. I'm going to advocate for what's best for these kids no matter what. Oh, so, um, I love you, Tanya. Now, I bet that not only that is hard for admin, not all admin. I think you actually, in your district, I do believe that you have some admin that are probably right along there with you and are saying, you know, we have to make some changes, but I also have to think that probably in the world of gen ed, that might ruffle some feathers too, because I have found that gen ed doesn't necessarily wrap their arms around some of these strong advocacy um, teachers that are really advocating for their students because they know that they can be successful in gen ed, but right. there needs to be accommodations. And I just love people like you, Tanya, that are willing to say, oh, back up this bus here and you hold them accountable because it's yeah. not okay. 
Absolutely. And it was really hard to hear the stories about before I started and about teachers being unwilling to accept our students in their classroom. And I just came in as a brand new teacher. I just came in with the attitude like you don't get a choice. There's no choice whether you you want our students in your classroom. They're a part of your classroom. Like that's just that is what it is. And um, and you're going to have to figure out how to deal with that. Now, I do. I do really though advocate for our um, general education teachers to get some extra help and training in dealing with kids with trauma with uh, you know these different diagnoses because our kids are either going to start there and then end up with us or our kids are going to start with us and end up there depending on the grade levels and they do I mean need some help and so it's it's been really helpful that our principal has in the last few years kind of come around to us um, as far as um, our counselor and myself doing some PD and we do get to talk with the other teachers and we do get to kind of say, hey, look, here's some strategies when you're working with a kid, even if it's just a kid in Jeanette who's having a rough day. Yeah. I mean, all these teachers need some extra help. We're all at the end of our ropes. We're all trying to juggle and make it work. Like, And Tanya, as a former teacher, um, I always appreciated the training on how to recognize behavior and all of the things, but we were never told what to do with it once we know how to identify the issue or identify the problems. Like we had the training on high A scores and what it looks like and how it presents, but there was no like follow through. Okay, now that you know that, now what do we do? Yeah, so right. I appreciate now you that you know that, that, right, one of the teachers uh, was like, oh, now that I know that, I just let them sleep out in the hallway for four hours a day. And I was like, oh, let's go have a chat about that. Find some other things that you can do to help this kid because sleeping so, four hours during the day isn't helping. No. So just for those that are listening, in case you don't know what PD stands for, it's in teacher world, that's professional development. And then um, Maria, you referenced ACEs. So ACEs is adverse child experience. So once you, so that's some terminology that if you're not familiar with what that is, that's what um, those terminology. And it's funny because in in different industries, they mean different things. So I always, I'm like, um, you know, pointing that out because it might be something totally randomly different in a different sector. One of the things I want to go back to is that you, I, I really feel when it really spoke to me when you were talking about some of the aversion to having these students coming from your class, going back into gen ed, because that is, again, the whole point for, you know, there are federal laws that protect children with disabilities. And again, we are to provide them an education in the least restricted environment. And when we talk about a classroom like yours, technically speaking, while delightful and nurturing and wonderful, and I'm sure some of your students would want to stay in your classroom environment forever, the goal, it's considered to be a restricted environment because they're not amongst their gen ed peers. To this point, there is a point Um, In some of the elementary schools, I've talked to special ed teachers. Do you know that in some, in some schools, and I don't, I, I, maybe it's the way that the principal does it is that it's almost like a high school draft when you're talking about kids with special that have IEPs. If they're in gen ed, it's the, all the teachers are sitting down based off of grade and they have the roster of all of the kids 
The ones that have the IEPs are noted. And then it's almost like a high school draft where some special ed teachers have told me it's just disgusting because you'll have, you know, one teacher saying, okay, fine, I'll take three, um, three kids with IEPs, but then I want my class size to only be blah, blah, blah. Or then I get these four kids because of whatever, whatever, whatever. And it's almost like, and the special ed teachers will describe it as almost like a flipping draft where, um, you know, teachers will, you know, essentially bargain over who has to take some of these kids that have higher needs and have more behaviors. And it just absolutely pisses me off that in some environments, that's the way that it's rolling out. Have you ever heard of that? I mean, you're kind of nodding your head. So you're, it doesn't seem like you're surprised. Um, actually my blood's just boiling. That's, that's what's going on right now. It's just so yeah. yeah, if I shut down how much I'm like moving, it's because I'm getting really upset. That's horrific. That is straight up not cool. Um, <laughs> I'm okay. I'm not surprised. I I understand that sometimes, and I don't. I don't mean this for everyone, for sure. I mean, I, but I feel like sometimes high school is just its own entity to itself and they just get to do whatever they want. I mean, just talking, um, our, our program consists across all grade levels. So we have an elementary and middle school and a high school program. And I was just talking to the high school teacher of our program and she has double her caseload and only one para for support. And none of the counselors at the high school level are there for SEL at all. They are only there for scheduling. They're only there for credits. They're only there to get kids into college. They are not there to support kids who have any sort of um, suicidal tendencies or drug use habits or home issues, or they just came out of a facility and now they're at school they don't have any counselors to support anything in the area of SEL. And that breaks my ever loving heart. Um, but to hear, like I said, it's not surprising, but that's, that's horrific. Yeah, I know. We have so I know at the elementary school level, I've been a part of because I go every to every classroom as my my kids are moving up and I make sure that I try and find whoever they're going to be most successful with for the following year. Um, I have a big group of third graders. So making sure that they are kind of going to be with the teacher that they're going to respond to the best. But and I know that as a special ed team in our building, we do try and make sure that not one classroom is is too overloaded or overwhelmed or whatnot. We just try and spread things out. But it's never talked about as as what the behavior looks like or as what the IEP looks like. It's never taken into account like it's just it's just the numbers at that point in time. It's never it's never I'll I'll take these three really hard kids if I only have this many, you know, kids in my classroom total. It's it's never been like that. Um, 
There has to be some planning and, and, and keep in mind people that are listening, especially if you're a teacher, I'm not throwing anybody on the bus because I do right. know exactly to what you're saying. You have to make sure you're matching certain teachers with certain personalities. And, you know, it does make sense that if there is, a, you know, quite a few kids that have IEPs, then there has to be some thought as to, you know, who's going to make a good fit for those different students. But, you know, when you have some kids that have strong behaviors um, and you have literally, it's like being picked last for the team in PE. I mean, that's how it feels. And I mean, fortunately, I don't, as parents, we're never part of those conversations, but I know that for some of my special ed, um, connections, it just absolutely, that's the part of their, their school year that they absolutely despise because it's just very, um, heart wrenching. And then to hear how, you know, other teachers then talk about kids that have behaviors, because again, they're not realizing that behaviors are communication and they're not as skilled in trauma and then how some of these behaviors manifest. And so I think I love that you're doing personal development in order to raise the bar a little bit and that level of training and understanding of what is it that you're seeing and to what you're saying to Maria, it's really nice is, oh, great. We can identify the behavior, but what do we do next? I mean, that's really the important piece. No, I do have to say when I was um, still teaching um, and it was the end of the year and placement for next year, we had the exact meeting that you were just discussing where all of the next grade level teachers would come together and be like, oh, I can't handle this behavior or I can't have this kid because I've had their parent. I was floored. In fact, it was one of the reasons that I was okay with resigning was the um, the attitude of the teachers of, for the kids that were coming in, they already had a negative connotation about them. And that's not fair to set a kid up for failure before they're even three months into your classroom. I mean, this was in June and the class, the next year wasn't gonna start till September. And they already had like, ugh, I just can't have that family. I was shocked in that meeting. Yeah. You don't get a choice. I'm sorry. Like, I don't, I don't care. I don't care if they had a rough time with parents the first go around. I don't care if they feel like they can't deal with the behavior. I will support you through those behaviors. Don't get me wrong. I will. I will come and I will come into your classroom. I will work with you with that kid. I will. You can call me. You can come out to my classroom and yell and and scream and eat chocolate. That's totally fine. But we're going to do this and we're going to go through it. And it's not it's not a choice. I really feel I feel like a lot of times. Um in a lot of different buildings in a lot of different ways that special education teachers have just, they're kind of just second-class citizens. A lot of times, um, it's really funny. My first year teaching, I, I have students who were supposed to take the state test and I was supposed to do all the training and I was never a part of any of the emails until two days before the testing window opened. And it was like, oh, okay, it's cool. I'm not a real teacher. And that's, you know, I just kind of say that flippantly, like, oh, it's fine. You don't have to include me. I'm not a real teacher, even though I teach all subjects across all grade levels all day anyways, yeah. and yeah. deal with behaviors, yeah. but it's cool. I'm not a real teacher, but I, I do think that that we as special education teachers need to stand up and realize that number one, the law's on our side. Yes. Um, and number yes. two, like, I'm sorry, but they don't get a say. I'm gonna put my gen ed or my special education students where they're gonna be successful, period. I will I will support you through whatever you are going through, but that's not on the kid. That has nothing to do with my kids. 
Yeah, because I love to go back to the, they're entitled to a free and appropriate education in the least restricted environment. So we don't get to then teach, um, then teachers don't get the right to then pick and choose how that gets rolled out. So you're right, the law is on your side. And it's nice when you have administration that basically sees that. And let's be real, special education is not getting smaller. It is not getting smaller. In fact, I was going to ask you the question. I have a belief, but I'm curious how you feel. Um, As we know, not all teachers have to have um, any special certificate in special education. There is some, obviously, there's a class I know that all teachers take when they're um, getting their teaching certificate. But how do you feel about making it mandatory that all teachers, all teachers have to have a certificate in special education when they're graduating? I think that would be lovely. I don't, you know, that's something in a perfect world that would be nice, but I do feel like also we need to be taking a look at some of those classes that they're teaching because they're so horrible. It's shocking. Uh, Oh my God. You know, I, I had some really great teachers that got pushed out of Eastern, um, really great special education teachers. They were husband and wife and did a fabulous job. And I learned a whole lot from them. And then I got to school and I was like, okay, hit the ground running. And then I went, no, I'm going to have to just kind of learn all this the hard way sometimes. Um, So so even though I feel like I had a great education, I still, they didn't necessarily prepare me for the real world. Do you feel like any state has a really good, um, do you know of any superstars in the nation that are just like, wow, they're doing, I know East coast is very progressive when it comes to full inclusion. So I would have to think that maybe East coast universities, I I, I don't know. And I haven't heard specifically. I mean, I knew there was a, a point in time where Washington was really on it and did really well. And when I got my degree, it was a separate, complete other degree. It wasn't just kind of an addition. Yeah. Um, and so I really thought that was probably the way to do it, honestly. But I think they just, they needed sped teachers so bad that they just kind of made it less consuming, I guess. I am not sure exactly why they make such big changes, but I, I do know that the people who make those changes have no idea because they're not really in a classroom either. So they're not. They're legislators. Kind of- and I complain to them all the time. Every chance I get, I like to tell legislators that they are missing the boat. And, you know, because it's Absolutely. like oh, special education is always a topic of conversation when you're talking about funding. When you're talking about capacity, when you're talking about, you know, again, the state of Washington not violating the the rights and 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 laws that are 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 there to protect children with with disabilities, but yet really when you start telling them, okay, let's swim upstream a little bit because we got to swim upstream to figure out this problem. And really, in my mind, it comes down to our teachers are not properly equipped to be able to meet the needs of our special education students. And without that, I mean, so maybe we need to be incentivizing, you know, number one, changing the the curriculum that um, students are, are going to college and what they're receiving in terms of education for special education. I personally think that we need to be considering that all teachers have to have um, a certificate in special ed. But then too, I think we need to be incentivizing it more because again, you're never going to get people to be signing up for it unless, you know, it's all what's in it for me. That's what it is. Right. People right. aren't born like you, Tanya, where you just have this part to want to work with this population because you love it and you get them. And so God bless you for just being that special person. I say God bless those preschool teachers because, oh oh, heavens, uh -uh, that is not, (laughs) that is not my population. I am not sunshine and rainbows all the time. 
that is that was my jam i loved it i loved it i really love sarcasm and my current <laughs> class lacks the ability to understand that so i feel like i'm teaching that more often than i'm teaching other things well, you know that is a very useful skill we practice with caleb on sarcasm because then he'll say uh mom was that sarcasm yes caleb. yes that was sarcasm yes well i don't you know so sometimes it was like hey caleb like you missed it i was using sarcasm and he was like oh can you explain that to me but yeah you're right sarcasm is part of life and it's like for some of it's, a, it's our lifeblood so let's segue into a fun part of this podcast which is like i'm sure in your career you've had all sorts of wonderful little antidotes that have happened in your class one of the things i always say is someday before i die i want to do like some stand-up comedy of some of my parenting experiences or even yeah. some of my not even necessarily my parenting experiences but just my interactions with some of the kids that i have had the pleasure of having in my life over the years so if you have to think of like one of your most favorite classroom um i call them bloopers um what are some that stand out in your mind so actually we write everything down that's funny on post-it notes. And so we have this like collection. I have a six year long collection of post-it notes. Well, so of you're really starting your book. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I love uh, even some of our kids in the past uh, who are impacted by autism. I love like their, their linear thinking and they're very, you know, like, okay, here we go. And so I, I set up this amazing, fantastic, at least in my mind, social studies lesson. And we, we covered all the fun stuff in Washington. And we were talking about the Capitol and, and, you know, why Olympia became the capital of Washington. And we're talking about all these unique things to Washington. And I'm like, okay, they're all like, they were all involved. They were answering questions. They were all paying attention. I was like, I nailed this. All right. And so we get lined up for the end of the day. And I'm just like, okay, who can raise their hand and tell me the capital of Washington? And everybody raises their hand and I'm like, yes. And I call on this boy and I'm like, okay, can you please tell me what the capital of Washington is? And he goes, the W. <laughs> and I went, well, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> totally that, not wrong. Like, yep. That was the one. Yep. The capital of Washington is the W. Yeah. And it's just. I same kid we were in in the cafeteria in the morning we're getting lined up and there's just a bunch of kids still eating breakfast in there and he had kind of been messing with his pants and he had one leg rolled up and the other leg down of his pants and we're standing in line and and our classroom's outside and it's cold and I'm like buddy you got to make sure you pull down your pants before we start walking it's pretty cold and he looks at me and I'm like, yeah. And I'm like motioning to my leg, just, just pull down your pants real quick and we'll, we'll get going. And he grabs the side of his pants and he starts pulling them down. And I'm like, oh, no, buddy, 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 your pant leg, your pant leg, your pant yeah. leg, the leg of your pant, not your whole pants. Oh, that's on me. Yep. Oh, so much. You don't realize how specific you have to be until you work in a world of very literal thinkers. And that has been so many times where I have found myself in trouble because exactly what you're saying. Okay. Bad use of words, bad use of words. 
Absolutely. One of my favorite stories to that degree was, you know, he went to school. It was our previous school district and he was in class with a young lady who was, um, had been adopted by family actually that I've known for a long time. And, um, it was a little bit of an adjustment because this little girl decided she wanted to change her name. Um, so she, I don't know, she was the same grade as Caleb. So she must've been in third or fourth grade at the time. And so she wanted to change her name because with this adoption, she wanted a new name. So that was a little bit of a transition for the kids, but she had to experience a lot of trauma in her early years anyway. So of course, this is about the time that I'm really trying to work on Caleb's self-esteem by telling him that he is perfect just the way he is that, you know, God doesn't make mistakes and, you know, Rudolph the red nose reindeer had a red nose. He was different, but he was the best one of them all, right? Like all these things. Well, anyway, this little girl, Caleb comes home. He's like, I hate such and such. Number one, I didn't know who it was at first because again, the name changed. So then we dial it back and he says that he was talking to this young lady and um, something had happened and he got upset and said, you know, well, my mom says I'm perfect, you know, and that my autism is what makes me perfect. And then of course her response to him was because of all the work her mother was doing you know, to really work on her adverse childhood experience was that my mom says that no one is perfect and it's okay to like, you know what I mean? So they are getting into a drop drought. I mean, they are just like going rounds about, well, your mom's a liar. No, your mom's a liar. And so then it was like, okay, so Caleb, you know, in hindsight, when I said that you're perfect, maybe that was a bad use of words. Like maybe that's fine, you know, like a different word. Cause you're right. No one is perfect and it's okay. But it was one of those moments of time where I'm like, God, I would have paid money to be at the school that day just to hear them be arguing about. And of course they're all coming from their parents trying to do all of this oh, about making them feel like everything is fine and you're normal. And then everybody's a little different and you know, all the things. And then it was like, shit, I picked the wrong word. So anyway. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, nobody's perfect. Now, how many kids right. do you normally have in your class? Um, so my caseload can be up to 12. I've had 14 and I've had five. So um, it just depends. We also get kids who move in and move out throughout the year. Um, so that's, that's so the hardest. Almost, I, you're almost like sorry. a case manager on top of it all because really... I, yeah, I am. I am the case manager. I am the teacher. I am the special education teacher. Um, I'm all of it other than, and I'm still the counselor when the counselor's not there. So well, let's talk a little bit about that too. Cause you actually, you said that you have a counselor that's actually literally just assigned to your room and your, your students there. That's like an, a genius concept. How long have you guys been doing that? Um, so she has actually been with the inception of the program 11 years ago. So she started with the beginning of the program and has seen it. Now, um, our current special ed upper admin have pulled her to various other positions. Um, I think they think that she is not necessary in our classroom full time. Oh. Um, oh. Oh. Sorry about that one. I got I to gotta <laughs> own that one. Sorry about that, Tanya. No, <laughs> that was not, not my doing. <laughs> it's not on you. No, I feel like, like uh, there's a story here that I need to hear. So, when Josiah was at the middle school, they needed extra support, and the counselor from that program was pulled in to assist him for the last couple of months of school a oh. few years back. But you didn't get her back then after that. We did get her back and then they pulled her um, again this year to work part-time because our middle school program had gone through so, uh, 
a large restructuring mm -hmm. and they thought that she uh, would be best to kind of help restructure all of that. Um, I mean, she did help, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's just, it's, it's really hard for our kids to have her and then not have her and have her and then not have her. And, and, and it's especially for our kids with trauma. I mean, she is the one that they open up to. I mean, she's the one who is trained as a therapist, not that she does therapy at the school. Don't get me wrong. She does not therapize at school, but I mean, she just naturally is able to get the kids who really need to talk about what's happened to them to talk about it. And it's kind of wizardry, honestly. Um, <laughs> she really is one of those people who can, can get everything out of you, whether you're a child, an adult, or a parent of one of our kids. Like she will, Maria's saying, yes, absolutely. Yes. She <laughs> All of a fine, you're just relaying your whole life story to this woman that you just met five minutes ago. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. She's totally that person. She will stand out in the parking lot with you until 8 PM as you're bearing your soul. Like she's done that with several of the teachers in our building. She's done that. I mean, just wherever she goes, it's just kind of her. Um, so it's, it's definitely a good place for her to be. And this is where her heart needs to be is. And so it's yeah. just, it's just really hard and disruptive to her to, to be pulled in so many different directions. Yeah. See, and unfortunately, once this gift is identified, then it's just like, Oh boy. So it's going to be one of those assets that's difficult to hold on to. Well, and with COVID it's all it is at schools every day is Rob Peter to pay Paul. It that's all it is. Rip the band-aid off of this geyser to put it over this geyser. And it's it's just not sustainable. And I have like five teacher friends where this is gonna be their last year because they just oh. can't. Oh, tell me, are they in special ed? Uh two of them, yeah. Oh god. Two of them were and then went into gen ed. Okay. Um, so mm -hmm. it's we just can't. We're just done. Everybody's so tired and teachers, you know, and, you know, maybe I just, this is maybe a moment in time where I'm wearing my rose colored glasses. I don't feel like I wear my rose colored glasses very often, but in the area of like, I, I have a lot of teacher friends that I'm, I'm friends with on social media. And when they're posting these things about, you know, teachers are not the enemies. I'm like, who says the teachers are the enemies? Like, where is this like language coming from? And then it's the, you know, cause so a lot of that jargon. And then I'm like, I mean, and it's all of my teacher friends. And so then I'm thinking, my goodness, like, are they just being attacked? Because like in some way, shape or form, they're the, the reason why COVID is happening. You know what I mean? It's, and it's just as preposterous to me. And this is that place where I am wearing my rose colored glasses. Cause it's like, well, what idiots in the world could actually blame a teacher for all this garbage. And yet it sounds like that's a lot of what's happening. Absolutely. And it's not, I mean, it's not just here. It's not just local. I have a friend in Indiana and the legislature is passing this whole thing where they have to show everything they're going to teach throughout the year by summer. And then parents can go through and decide what they want to opt their kids out of being taught. And I'm like, are you like, and they also have no ability to talk to a student about anything related to SEL. So as mandated reporters, we are no longer in the, if that legislation passes, we would no longer be able to be mandated reporters. We wouldn't be able to report anything because we'd have to report it to parents and parents only. And it would be up to the parents to let the the state know which what parent yeah. if they're causing the trauma at home is going to call on themselves 
Well, and one of the challenges in special education and special parenting world where you have a child with a disability, one of the things that happens inside the home is that we've actually had siblings that are being like um, inappropriately touched by a brother um, or even a sister that has a developmental disability. And again, um, developmentally, there's a, a problem there that needs to be addressed. And so parents are wanting to keep that a secret and then prevent that from being reported because of course, you know, and, and again, it's just this whole nasty circle of, and I get it, you know, because, but on the other hand too, you have a duty to protect that child that's being inappropriately treated, um, whether there's a developmental disability or not. Um, but then they're worried, well, are they going to put my kid in jail? And it's like, I don't know what the answer is. Honestly, I feel like there's got to be some, a lot of things that happen prior to that horrible situation where a child has to be prosecuted for that. But on the other hand too, then, I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, it's just so hard and so icky, but still, it's just unbelievable. The world is just unraveling left and right. So I am just so thankful that we have teachers like you out there. Um, one of these days I want to get come into your classroom and read your post-it notes because I feel like um, we are we are sisters from another mister because I too keep a collection of all of the funny things that have been sent to me. Most of the time I share them on social media or in my podcast. So they're really not secrets anymore, but someday when I'm dead, these podcasts are going to be worth gold. I'm just <laughs> Yeah, we, uh, we keep the post-it notes all year. And then at the end of the year, we, our team gets together and we go through them and it's just such a great highlight, especially the last few years where it feels like the end of the year is kind of a letdown or, or the year overall felt rough or something in some way to go back and to look at all the positive stuff and look at all the funny stuff is just a great way to end the year and keep a positive light on it. That's exactly, that's what gets me by in like this whole having, being a parent of a child with autism is that it's those little funny things that you look back on and they're unorthodox. Some of them are even like hair raising moments, but you can look back and if you can't laugh, you'll cry. And you know what? Laughing is so much better. Laughing is so much better. There has to be some you know, sliver of, of, of light there on your rainbow that just, and that's all of the post-it notes, all the post-it notes of life. So absolutely. Well, Marie, did I cover everything? Did I miss anything that you wanted to address? No, um, I just appreciate you, Tanya. I knew that I wanted you on and I would love to hear your stories. And I just didn't know how to navigate the podcast as well as Holly did. Um, but I just totally appreciate your willingness to come and chat with us and let us inside of a world that not very many of us get to experience. So I really, really thank you for your time and your willingness to share with us. Absolutely. Anytime. I like our, our whole philosophy kind of in our classroom is to be transparent. So, I mean, anybody can come, honestly, come visit us in our classroom at any time. We love it. And we train our, you know, not train. We work with our kids during social skills on how to appropriately introduce themselves and all of those great things. And so we love having visitors and we love having interruptions because our kids got to figure out how to deal with interruptions. My favorite. Oh, <laughs> that's our, that's, that's my whole philosophy is yeah, let's talk. Let's get it out there. All of it. My favorite was watching your kiddos um, teach the gen ed kids in the hall, how to walk and how to shake hands. Like that was a full circle moment that I loved being able to witness. So. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, it's so funny when you see that makes it really difficult for our kids to transition to general education as well is because we have such strict structures in place when they go into that Jenna classroom and everybody is just all over the place. Nobody's raising their hand and nobody's getting called on. No one's wearing their mask. And, da -da 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 -da, and our kids go. <laughs> uh, I thought you taught me all these skills yeah. to use in a general education classroom. And now I'm the one who's actually sitting quietly, asking things appropriately, raising my hand regularly and not getting called on and wearing my mask. What's wrong with all these other kids? These kids are terrible. And yeah. I'm like, yeah. That's actually one of the things that Caleb tells me. He says, mom, I didn't know how badly behaved um, kids were until I got to middle school. And it's just a, a, just a whole building filled with just badly behaved children. And I'm just <laughs> like, it's, he's kind of not wrong. I mean, middle school is just not a fun place. It's just not. And so we really try so hard to get our kids to graduate out of our program before middle school. I know that they have, there is support at the middle school for them. And I'm really glad that it's been updated and revamped, but I mean, I honestly, anytime possible that we can kind of take a label off of them and, and get them ready and get them set and get them started fresh and clean and new without all of that. I mean, we're always working towards that. And I know, uh, my, my biggest group of boys are all now freshmen in high school, which is crazy to me. And I started with them when they were in third grade and we, out of the nine that moved up that year, we were able to exit five of them. Um, one of them ended up back in because I can't stop what's happening at home. Yeah. Yeah. I can't stop that. I also um, had one go up to middle school that was in our program. And once he was able to get on the correct, you know, types of medicines that only 13 plus year olds can be on, then all of a sudden he was out and back in gen ed and everything was great. Um, so it was just, it was so, so fun to just see them start middle school and, and just be normal. Whatever I that is. That when the time comes that you will have the opportunity to go and attend and be present at that graduation. I really feel like you need to see those, those young people graduate from high school, knowing that you had a huge impact into helping them learn the skills needed to be that successful. I still have one who emails me his grades. Oh, I love <laughs> And he'll that. just be like, Miss Amdo, um, these are my grades. And I'll be like, mm what could have helped you do a little bit better in English? Yeah, right. And he's like, well, showing up to class would help. I'm like, yeah, yes. There think. we go. That would be a, a vast improvement, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, I'll try. Okay, what a, you do that. What an impact you've made that he's still doing that. I just absolutely love it. That's yeah, just I definitely have a couple that were, that's uh, it's a two-edged sword though, because we do, we have my my two that are at the middle school that moved up this year are really some of like my pride and joy and they begged to stay. They begged and begged and begged to stay uh, in elementary school. And it is, it, it, you were saying earlier that it really is a part, a part of our job is to build that trust with them and give them that safe place when they don't always have that safe place at home. And then and then middle school goes, well, why are they not independent enough? And I go, because, 
because we had to build this relationship and we had to get them to this place. And then they get to high school and high school goes, they're just not independent. They can't do anything on their own. They just need my approval all the time. And, and I'm like, I know, but like, they it's have so hard. Have- yeah. Is it so hard to give it to them? I mean, I feel like in the, I guess when your caseload is twice what it should be, and you only have one pair for support, then yes, yeah. it probably is difficult. Yeah. Um, and so and I, that's why I, we need I, more funding. We need more funding yeah. to fund special education. Well, and I, I mean, we have 86 positions open for paraeducators. Yeah, there's not there's, any people. There's plenty of funding. We just don't, I mean, nobody, nobody wants to do this right now. I don't think people want to work. When you can start at, did you know that you can make $18.50 an hour starting at, uh, what's that, uh, Panda Express? Yeah. Oh, no. Believe me. I have my- As an 18-year-old? My teenagers are making like some serious cash. And then I think back to myself in high school, I was making five bucks an hour and thinking I was killing it. No, that's what I was telling. I mean, Isaac Foundation, we're a fantastic organization, but we are a not-for-profit. So, you know, our pay scale has always been relatively low. And then all of a sudden when you have, you know, next door to our building, you have a sign saying that they're hiring and the starting pay is literally, I mean, who would go into- doing, being a para working in nonprofit sector, because it's very, you know, the wages are not, I mean, it's just difficult to compete and you're never going to attract the really quality people that you need with the the amount of money that they have to pay. Absolutely. And that's another, Well, it's just like, why go in and get a hundred thousand dollars with the student loans to be a teacher when you can start at some of these places for what teachers make? Oh, absolutely. I always think I, sometimes I I love my job as the executive director of the Isaac foundation. I wouldn't trade it for anything, but there are some days that I think about, wow, my dream job, I think is being the receipt checker at Costco. Cause you know, the hardest decision you have to make all day long is, are you going to do a star or a heart or maybe just a check mark? (laughs) How about a line? Did you screw that crazy kid that asked for a rocket every time? Yeah, I I know, right? That's just it. And I think to myself, I would, I would go nuts after a while, but I just think to myself, you know, we have, you have a very hard job. You are so doing all that social, emotional learning, trying to support them through trauma, helping with learning disabilities, behaviors, all the things, you know, we also, Maria has a difficult job. We have to meet the needs of a lot of different people at various places and they have a lot of different needs. Um, and their capacity is very different. And so, but it's, you have days where it's like, it feels overwhelming, but then there's days where you think, wow, receipt checker at Costco sounds pretty lovely today because we have to make bigger, harder decisions, you know? Yeah. Mine has always been naming nail polishes or lipsticks. <gasps> like I want that job. That is yeah. I just want to name lipstick colors. <laughs> yes. That is a good it's job. Like, I have never like about vibrant that. violet, you know, just like, yeah. I could do that something. all day. Yeah, that's Absolutely. so true. Well, Tanya, I hope you'll be willing to come back and be another podcast guest. At times, we love having, we've been doing a lot of podcasting on 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 education just because, again, people are very focused on education right now, good, bad, or otherwise. Um, so hopefully we can get you back and we'll talk about some other stuff related to special ed, world, IEPs, all the stuff um, in a future podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, when they make this uh, legislative decision on uh, de-escalation and restraint policies that's coming out right now, bring me back because I'm going to have some words for that one. Let's do it. I love it. But you'll have to wait for that podcast in the future. And we'll definitely have Tanya back. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of Isaac's Autism Wild Podcast. 
And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.